faculty member has created a website containing all of the supplemental readings for the semester. The website includes the syllabus, articles, book chapters, and an online discussion forum. Also included are materials from the textbook, which the students are required to purchase. She gives the students a password for the website and instructs them not to share it with anyone else. The website will be deleted at the end of the semester. In what ways might this website pose a risk of infringement to the faculty member and the institution? Is the faculty member in that scenario a crook? Are the students violating the law? Is the institution? Hello, I'm Shelley Lockhart. The scenario is one of several we'll be using today to illustrate the kinds of copyright questions faculty, students, and others face every day as they use the Internet for teaching and learning. Sometimes educators restrict themselves unnecessarily and they don't take advantage of all that the copyright law allows. After each scenario, we'll examine the legal and ethical issues presented with our panel members who are experts on copyright, higher education law, and distance education. Two are attorneys at major universities, and one is an author, a professor, and a distance educator. We're going to meet them in just a moment. Your role, as always, in our live satellite events is to interact with the panelists to ensure that your concerns are addressed. Today, we're going to manage the interaction differently than we usually do. There are almost 600 colleges, universities, libraries, schools, and government agencies in the U.S. and Canada receiving this program. Now, over the past few days, we've already received more questions than the panelists can answer in the time we have. And we're expecting and hoping for a lot more questions and comments today. We'll deal with many of the facts and email questions as we discuss the scenarios. And we'll also insert some of the questions we've received into those discussions. So we'll take questions by facts throughout the program, but we will hold off on taking telephone calls until the last segment of the program in that third half hour. By then, you'll know whether your question's been dealt with, and if it hasn't, then you can ask the panelists yourself. The fax number for you to fax your questions in, 1-972-669-6633. Again, we'll use the fax and the email questions throughout the program. The telephone number for the last segment is 1-800-745-0371. You can talk with the panelists just after 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. More instructions are provided on page 4 of your participant package. Now let's meet our panelists. No one knows better than they do that intellectual property questions can be complicated, but the issues are essential to effective teaching using the Internet. They began preparing for this event weeks ago, and they didn't stop when they got here to Dallas. Almost from the moment they arrived, they began analyzing the facts and email questions and making sure we cover as many key concepts as possible. Georgia Harper is considered the foremost expert on copyright among the members of the National Association of College and University Attorneys. Georgia is manager of the intellectual property section in the general counsel's office for the University of Texas system. She lives in Austin. Steve McDonald is associate counsel for the Ohio State University. He is also an adjunct professor at the law school where he teaches a course on electronic communication and tort law. Steve was a panelist on the Dallas teleconference on use and abuse of the Internet last year. He lives in Columbus. Janice Brewell-Hyde is a nationally known author in the field of copyright, and she oversees the U.S. West Montana Teachers Network, training teachers online to use the Internet. She's a professor in the College of Education, Health, and Human Development at Montana State University and lives in Bozeman. More information on the panelists is on page five of your participant packet. Welcome to all of you. We're pleased to have you here with us. 
As you watch the program today, please keep in mind that the information presented here is only general information and must not be relied on as a substitute for obtaining legal advice from a licensed attorney. Now, before we get back to the first scenario, I want to ask our panelists to lay the groundwork for their analysis of copyright on the Internet. Now, Georgia, how do you approach this topic overall? Well, I think it's real important as we talk about the risks that we're going to be looking at to keep in mind that those are balanced against our institutional missions to educate, do research, and scholarship. We don't want to focus just on the legal risks. Steve, you've dealt with copyright mostly in terms of institutional liability. What's your starting point? Well, for me, the key point is that our liabilities in this context are the same as they are in any other context, which is to say that will be vicariously liable for what our faculty and staff do within the scope of their employment. And as a general, we won't be liable for what our students do, um, or for that matter, for what our faculty and staff do on their personal time, um, unless we know about it and it's on our servers. What is different in this context is that it creates all sorts of new opportunities for infringement. And it's very important, from my perspective, to educate our faculty, staff, and students about their responsibilities to try to avoid some of that. Okay. Janice, as a faculty member and an author on the subject of copyright issues, what do faculty most often want to or need to know about this? Well, they want to know if material is copyrighted and how to find out how to use it in a reasonable and timely manner, which isn't as easy as it might sound. They also want to know exactly what they can use from copyrighted materials in a course that they're going to put on the web and how much of a piece that they may use and what needs to be done with it. They need to know about fair use and how to weigh that and use that as a tool, and that's sometimes very difficult. Okay. All right, let's get down to the cases literally and figuratively. The scenarios we'll use today are fictionalized, but they are based on real-world situations. We're going to replay the scenario we used to open the program, and then we'll have the panel discuss it. A faculty member has created a website containing all of the supplemental readings for the semester. The website includes the syllabus, articles, book chapters, and an online discussion forum. Also included are materials from the textbook which the students are required to purchase. She gives the students a password for the website and instructs them not to share it with anyone else. The website will be deleted at the end of the semester. In what ways might this website pose a risk of infringement to the faculty member and the institution? As we go to the panelists for their comments, remember that you can send a question by fax at any time, but save your phone calls until our last half hour. Now, Georgia, can a faculty member put part of a textbook online? You know, one of the uh, email questions that we got was from someone who was planning to put workbook questions online. And we thought this was sort of a good example of what one might do that would be reasonable. Um, in this case, as the scenario describes it, it's especially nice because the website's going to be limited in access. Not anyone can get to it. Um, there are going to be, um, well, the students have purchased the textbook, so there's, it's especially nice in that there won't be lost sales as a result of this use. And then finally, the, the website's going to be d deleted at the end of the semester. So with that kind of protection, I think the use of that part of a textbook is very reasonable. He was going to put it in, in a form so that the students could actually enter their um, answers to the the uh, homework questions online, which sounds like a really nice use. Now, what guidelines exist for educational fair use of materials in online courses? 
Um, I'm just going to try to use this uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about CONFU. Many people probably haven't heard of it. There was a conference on fair use, and everyone refers to it by its acronym CONFU. Um, this was an attempt by a lot of people to come up with fair use guidelines in contexts like this. Um, unfortunately, the effort it did produce some guidelines, but the guidelines didn't get the kind of consensus support that made them clearly uh, official or, or in some way. So as a result, there's a lot of confusion about what you can do with them. Um, there was a set that didn't even get as much support as some of the others that was for electronic reserves. And this particular use that we've described here um, isn't, an, isn't a reserve question, but the same principles apply. So these guidelines, even if, if they're not official, quote unquote, they're still useful as starting points for trying to figure out whether what you want to put online would fit within fair use. Okay. Our first question from Cornell University. They ask, I print course packets for faculty at a university-owned bookstore. I have to obtain copyright permission and pay royalties to do so. All of my denials and super expensive royalty articles usually get put on electronic reserve in the library. So how is it that the libraries can print out these same articles for students without permission? Well, both are relying on fair use. And uh, the bookstore, the library are both relying on the same principles of fair use to do that. So that's that's why that can happen. I think in, in that case, um, the, the analysis really should be the same. Um, they shouldn't be doing different things mm -hmm. right. in that situation. The standards are probably the same. and They probably can both do the mm -hmm. same thing. If he's not allowed to do it, the library also probably is not allowed Good to do point. it. Here's a question that we got a little bit early earlier. Is using online courses developed by another college a way to avoid having to deal with copyright issues on the internet since the college which created the course is responsible for copyright compliance? Well, that's certainly going to be a help. Um, anytime you have somebody else uh, hopefully complying with copyright law themselves, you're going to be safe, or safer, I should say, than you would be otherwise. But if it turns out that they were wrong, you're going to be liable anyway. And so it's very important when you acquire those materials that you get appropriate warranties, um, that they have complied with copyright law, and hopefully indemnities, um, indemnities that can be backed up with hard assets. Hopefully. Yeah. From the University of Missouri, how have fair use guidelines been applied to distance education as a whole and to internet delivery of distance education courses in particular? Well, distance learning guidelines that were proposed under CONFU didn't deal with asynchronous types of courses at all. Uh, they did deal with traditional, um, well, not traditional, but interactive television types of courses and satellite. And there we would simply apply fair use as we would in other courses. But they specifically excluded any discussion of asynchronous courses, which is what we're all doing right now with web-based. Anybody else? We have another question from Northwestern State, unless you have something else to add to that. Okay, from Northwestern State, to what extent is it permissible to use internet retrievable information as a handout in a lecture or as part of a visual presentation? The Off-Air broad off Broadcast Guidelines, wrong set. The classroom uh, copying guidelines were developed to deal primarily with materials in the print format from periodicals and books. But I've been delighted to find out here that we can also apply some of that, even though they are restrictive and they are minimum guidelines, to materials that we download from the Internet. I think as long as you mm -hmm. meet the tests of spontaneity and brevity and Good so point. forth, um, there's no reason, no mm -hmm. real reason why that shouldn't be a fair use using Internet materials mm -hmm. any more than 
using book or article materials. Mm -hmm. The important thing is to keep within those guidelines, which are very restrictive. Very restrictive. And they often are interpreted in as maximum instead of minimum. So there has to be a certain amount of common sense used there as well. Okay. Let's move to another scenario. This one deals with free use and fair use. Is there a distinction? A student establishes an I Hate Megasoft website on a university server. The site contains critiques of both Megasoft's aggressive marketing and licensing strategies and of its software. To illustrate its point, the site includes copies of several Megasoft programs that can be downloaded. The student encourages users of the site to send him other critiques and programs to be posted. Megasoft learns of the site and demands that the university disable it. When contacted by the university, the student claims that what he is doing is fair use because he isn't charging anything for the software. Is free use fair use? Steve, let's start with you. Is free use fair use? Well, that's certainly what our students think. And in many cases, that's what our faculty think. <laughs> um, but as a lawyer, I'm professionally bound to answer that question by saying it depends. Um, <laughs> of course. The, the fact that it is free is just one of the four fair use factors, and you have to go through the entire analysis before you can make that determination. The fact that it's free is an important factor in favor of the student, and the fact that in this particular case that he's doing it purportedly for critical reasons, for criticism reasons, um, also is a very helpful factor. But the other two factors, um, the amount of substantiality of his use, he's using entire software programs, that doesn't help. And the fact that um, this could have a potentially devastating effect on Megasoft's market um, effectively eliminates any chance at all that this is fair use. So what are the potential consequences for the student? Well, they're fairly serious. On the civil side, um, uh, as much as $100,000 in damages per infringement. Um, and on a site like this, there are probably many, many infringements there. Um, particularly, uh, it, it becomes particularly dangerous for him once he has noticed that Megasoft is objecting. He might be able to claim before that that he didn't know or, or claim some fair use defense, but once Megasoft has come to him and told him this is not uh, permitted and, and he knows it's not a fair use, at that point it's probably willful infringement and you get to the $100,000 per infringement. Is the No Electronic Theft Act a factor in this situation? That also would be a factor. What, what the No Electronic Theft Act is was a, a statute enacted, um, I think it was signed into law just earlier this year, um, an attempt to make clear that it can be criminal copyright infringement even if you are not charging for what you're doing. And there are certain thresholds. Um, if you are uh, distributing, whether or not for profit, um, software having, or, or anything copyrighted, having a value, retail value of $1,000 or more, um, it can be a, a, a net act issue and it can be criminal liability. If it's $2,500 or more, it could be a felony. The one question here, um, and the facts we have don't tell us enough, is whether it's willful or not. Again, um, he might be able to claim up to the point that he has noticed that it's not willful, which would mean it would not be a criminal act. But once he has that notice, if he continues, um, there's a very real chance of criminal liability here. Okay, we have a question from California State University in Chico. Microsoft is trying to implement per-seat software licensing. I believe the current law allows a user to load applications not operating system software on an office as well as a home computer. Does a user have to buy into Microsoft's attempted reinterpretation of the law? Well, you know, it sounds to me like there may be a little bit of confusion on the part of the, of the person asking because 
the copyright law itself doesn't address that issue of using something at home and using it on your computer at your office. Most licenses these days are beginning to look at that. So if it was allowed to this user, uh, it was through a license more than likely. And for uh, Microsoft to reinterpret its own license to now go to a different format is, is perfectly within their rights to do that. It's very important always mm -hmm. to look at your licenses because they often do modify copyright law rights in very significant ways. Right. Well, the faxes are starting to come in, and we have a question from the University of Pittsburgh. What are the rules of placing links to other websites on your web page? Do you have to ask permission? No. <laughs> That's a good no. answer. <laughs> yes, the most succinct no. you're going to get today. However, it's good etiquette to do so. And uh, if someone asks that you remove your link to their site, we should do we should we need to do that and very graciously. Okay. There has not been a court case that's really addressed this issue of whether a link itself could be infringement. But I don't think any serious copyright lawyer or scholar believes that a link in and of itself would be infringement. Well, what about copying somebody's whole set of links? You know, if I go to a good site and I see, wow, there's a bunch of good links and they're all annotated, I'll just take those and put them on mine. That's not appropriate. Can't do that. If you have a list of bookmarks that mm -hmm. you copy those links, mm -hmm. then you have a compilation, and mm -hmm. that might be um, itself copyrightable expression and, and taking the entire file, um, unless it's fair use or unless you have permission, could be a copyright infringement. Okay, we have a question. Let's see, where is this from? <laughs> what is the preferred wording for copyright notices posted at printers, at photocopy machines, on, on printouts or copies prepared by the library for somebody else's use? Um, that's a, that is a good question because um, the libraries are required to put a notice above their copy machines and now that they're taking orders for like reserve items on the internet, uh, faculty can fill out a form and that same notice is required by the statutes, actually by some regulations, to be included on their form. Um, the, I'm not going to read the form of the notice here but um, we have materials that we provided for um, the participants in the packet and the notice, uh, you can get to the notice from those materials online. So uh, I would urge them to look for that notice there. And that, that's a, the website that, that Georgia has prepared, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful website. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> we have a question from Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in Alberta, Canada. Can panelists refer to any people or organizations who can provide more information on American copyright law issues and do laws in the U.S., copyrighted works apply if they're used in Canada. On the first part, goodness, the, the packet that participants have received has an extensive list of URLs and all sorts of print materials and non-print materials, which then have links to the planet, basically, on copyright. So there's really a good set of information here. Uh, copyright Management Center, the Copyright Crash Course, is one of the best, I must admit, to start with. And then go to her Off Links button and hit, and you're out in the universe. Okay. Second part? Yes. Well, uh, our, our laws only apply to works that are, that are created here in this country. Um, Canada has its own set of copyright laws, and they're very similar to ours, but they aren't the same. Uh, and, for example, they have a different idea about fair use than we do. However, they will respect the fact that works that are created in this country and, and are copyrighted in this country, yes. they will respect our copyrights under their laws, under the Berne Convention. Right. Um, all the countries that are members of that, and there are over 100, mm -hmm. I believe, will respect each other's copyrights. So even though the work may not be copyrighted under Canadian law, they'll still respect the fact that it is copyrighted. Okay. This next scenario involves an issue that services more and more often as courses are developed for the Internet. Let's watch.
professor creates a web course for delivery. She is not paid for the course development, but she is paid to teach the course, which resides on the college server. Time passes. The professor goes on leave for a semester, and someone else is hired to teach the course. Who owns the course? The faculty member or the college? Well, all right, who does own the course? Janice, what are the key issues here? Well, this scenario is actually taking place all over the country. There's lots of interesting war stories I could share, but we'll deal with this one. Um, basically, we need to think in terms of who owns the course. It could be the faculty member owns the courses, kind of been the traditional model with print materials and all that. It could be if the institution owns the course and has to negotiate, or it could be a combination where the faculty member and the, the institution enter into a dialogue where they set parameters for, you know, first right of refusal to teach and review and that sort of thing. There's a document I want to mention in the packet from CETUS, uh, that is C-E-T-U-S, and that's listed in the URL section. They have a wonderful little pamphlet that talks about opening up this dialogue. An author who's not listed that bears attention is Dan Burke, B-U-R-K, and he's not listed in the uh, packet, but he's someone that folks could search for information. He's done a couple of very good articles on different models of faculty ownership. It's very important to think about it up front. Is it different when it's a course? Sure. Um, there, one of the reasons is, if you think about a course that's going to be delivered via the World Wide Web, you've got digital images, possibly. There's video, music, text. There's a whole bunch of different types of materials that can go into making a course like this work well. So we have to think in terms of the different layers that uh, Steve's going to talk about a little bit later. We also have to think about the amount of support that might go into helping a faculty member develop a web-based course. If I sit at home in my home office and develop a course, well, maybe that's one thing. But at the university, I may be using university-owned equipment, um, different types of resources. If it's a multimedia project, there'll be lab time and assistance. So the university may have a lot more vested types of, of support types issues that need to be dealt with there. What about the work for higher doctrine in section 101 of the Copyright Act? Does that apply to this? It certainly will. Um, the primarily is background. Um, work for higher doctrine is sort of a default rule that says that um, an employer owns the copyright in a work that um, their employ employees create during the scope of their employment. Um, traditionally, colleges and universities have not exercised that right with respect to faculty members, and we all have policies that, that deal with this. Um, I guess from my perspective, the important thing is that you really need to look at your policies to determine it, because almost every school, every institution has decided this is a matter of policy. You can change the default rule um, to whatever you want, effectively. I know the various options mm -hmm. that Janice was talking about are, are some of the more common ones. We have a question from Trinity University in San Antonio. At our university, we have equipment available for student use that allows them to digitize music from an audio CD and record that music onto another CD. Is it permissible for a student to take music for several audio CDs and re-record complete tracks onto a second audio CD for their personal use? And what liability does the university have in that situation? There actually is a, a law that permits you to do your own taping for your own personal use. Um, it's, it, uh, I don't usually think of it as being a, a university issue be, because people usually do this at home. It's mm -hmm. called the Home Recording Act. But um, I guess if, the, if it's legal to do it, the fact that they used institutional equipment shouldn't be a problem. Would, would you agree? I'd have to go back and look at the exception. I think that may only be for home recording. I'm not sure that that would apply, but I, I don't know offhand um, whether that does. Music creates a lot of 
quirks in copyright <laughs> law that are sort of hard to sort through, and you have to really pay attention to the statute. We have a question from the University of Memphis in Memphis. What is the current status of copyright reform for the Internet? Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> we could spend the rest of this time talking that. about that. <laughs> that there are several bills before Congress. They're in various uh, states of uh, revision. They're constantly there are hearings. There are markups. It's very it's very hard to say right now what kind of laws will be passed by the end of the session um, dealing with copyright reform. But these are the kinds of things that are being looked at. Uh, internet service provider liability, that would be like the institution's liability for student problems. Um, whether fair use applies in the electronic environment, the extension of the distance education part of the, the uh, code, that would be section 110, 1 and 2, to more thoroughly cover the kinds of things that we do today electronically. Um, the uh, taking parts out of databases, that's being looked at. Um, devices that are used to get past encryption, that's being looked at. What else? There, I mean, there are at least four or five different bills pending, and they do they address the whole gamut of issues under the Internet. It's, it's important that we take part in those, because mm -hmm. there, are, there are big, powerful interests, the copyright owner interests, who are really trying to um, minimize the scope of fair use and to grab onto more of the rights. And if, if we're not part of that conversation, we may end up losing quite a bit of what we have right now. Mm -hmm. There is a way to kind of try and keep current a little bit, and that is by visiting one of the sites, again, that's in the packet, the Fair Use site at Stanford. And they have it on, right at the top of their initial screen. You can go in and take a look at bills that are pending in Congress and the House and, and kind of follow the process. I want to echo what you're saying about our professional organizations simply must take some leadership here. I think one of the problems with Confu was that we had some who just didn't participate in the conversation. And this is a chance for us to actually take some leadership and to be heard. Many so of them we pay attention. They are, yes. The Salgic mm -hmm. AAU, a number of the um, organizations are very active in this. Mm -hmm. American Library Association has been sort of beating the bushes on some issues too. So it's um, we need to be heard also. Our next question comes from Philadelphia WHYY TV. Does an instructor need to do more than require the textbook before part using part of it online? And does the instructor need to assure that there is no loss of sales? Hmm. We. I think that, excuse me, our first question dealt with that, mm -hmm. and I think we, we sort of showed how the best case is where you limit access to the website, take it down at the end of the semester, and require um, that the students buy the book. I don't, I don't know how a faculty member would ensure there were no lost sales. I don't know what that would mean exactly, but I think that if you do the things that we've just talked about, uh, unless you're using some excessive amount of the, of the book, that um, you really are on good ground. Mm -hmm. oh. You really do have to look at each case, though, mm -hmm. individually, yes, look at all the true. facts, because the four factors can come out very differently mm -hmm. for, for seemingly minor reasons. Mm -hmm. I would say that if you have password restricted it to mm -hmm. students, and if you required students to purchase the textbook, um, and if you're not using the entire textbook, right. I'd say very good chance you're a fair use at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, James. Okay. I'm just going to say another practice is to require the readings in a textbook and then put a copy on reserve. So in essence, the students may not be buying the book. They're responsible for the readings. How does that factor into this? It's just, it's another approach, mm -hmm. uh, assuming that the textbook is outrageously expensive mm -hmm. and the faculty member doesn't want to assign the whole book. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to tell you uh, briefly about something that I learned about one of my institutions where a faculty member was thinking of creating a, sort of an interactive um, 
online thing, I don't know what to call it, that went along with <laughs> a, a French textbook. It was going to be something that would enhance the textbook. And it's the kind of thing when, when you think about it, you would go, you need permission to do that. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he talked to the publisher about doing it, and they hired him to create the CD-ROM that goes in the back of the French textbook so that this great idea that the faculty member had for enhancing by online uh, applications, the textbook ended up being something that now everyone has access mm -hmm. to, and he made some money on doing it. And good point, it's not always us versus them. Right, sometimes um, we can collaborate with them to Entrepreneurial opportunities, yes. Yeah. We have a question from the North Iowa Area Community College. Can I use short segments of copyrighted music on a real audio server for an online music class if only students with a password can access the online course material? I wouldn't fear you supply to that. I guess maybe the trick is how much. Mm -hmm. And again, the limitation, mm -hmm. the password mm -hmm. is such a, an important part of showing, um, I think, showing publishers that we are, are trying not to undercut mm -hmm. their markets. We're trying not to threaten their livelihoods. If, if it's a small enough percentage of the music so that no one would consider that a substitute for buying the CD, mm -hmm. that would be a, a very helpful mm -hmm. factor. Mm -hmm. We have, um, I guess it's kind of a comment from the classroom of the future <laughs> at the Wheeling Jesuit University in Wheeling. Um, regarding your response to internet links, be aware that some sites now require that link licenses be completed. Anybody comment on link licenses? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> well, um, I'd like to address it in, in two ways. First is to say that what people require, just like the little notice in the front of a book says you can't copy this under any circumstances, what people require of you or want to impose on you and what they legally can impose on you aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, the owner of a copyright has five exclusive rights under the copyright law and they're very specific and one of them doesn't seem to be or be reasonably interpreted to be the right to authorize links. It's just not one of the rights. Um, and what you do when you create a link doesn't violate any of those five rights. So in a way, when someone says, you can't link to my site, they are exercising or trying to exercise over you a power that the, co that the copyright law doesn't give them. So as Janice said earlier, out of courtesy, you might want to um, do what they asked. But it's not clear at all to me that someone has the right to tell you that you cannot link to them or that or require you to sign something in order to do it or pay something in order to do it or, or anything like that. Of course, that doesn't mean they won't sue you. And you have to take into account how risk averse you are, whether you want to go through that process. But I would think in a situation, if, if this is in fact the situation the person um, is positing, I think there's almost no chance that a court would say that that they can impose that requirement. It's like saying you have to have permission to drive down my street. You can't, I, you can't do, do that. Mm -hmm. How should a college or university decide where to draw the line between encouraging academic exploration and minimizing risk? Let's view this next scenario. A faculty member is having a short and not too friendly conversation with a librarian. The librarian has just described the library's policy for placing materials on electronic reserve and provided a written summary of the policy to the faculty member. The faculty member is very upset because at another institution where he worked, the policy was much looser and provided greater latitude for him to use materials on his own website. 
He is convinced that the policy he must comply with is unnecessarily restricted, and he says he will defy it. Is one institution's policy right and the other's wrong? How do institutions arrive at their policy positions? Well, this is the thing uh, we talked about a little bit earlier where you, you look at the risk of infringement, you look at what people are doing and how you can lower that risk, but you've also got to weigh on the other side, your institutional mission. If we, if we wanted to, we could just insist that there be no risk. If there's a risk, you don't do it. But that would seriously impair our ability to do what we're supposed to be doing, which is teaching, research, scholarship. So we have to settle for some amount of risk to do that. And different institutions are comfortable with different levels of risk. So what if an institution has a very vague policy or no policy at all? Well, actually, I think a vague policy is better than no policy at all. None at all gives you some problems in other areas, which we will probably get to later. A vague policy has some drawbacks, but it's not as bad as none at all. So what are the consequences for an employee and for his institution if he violates the institution's policy? Well, that becomes a very um, dangerous area if you violate the policy. Once you've set your policy, um, you've pretty much set what you believe to be fair use. And uh, whether you're right or not, you may still have what's called the good faith fair use defense uh, that would protect you from having any damages, being, uh, damages imposed upon you in a lawsuit. Um, so once you set that policy, it's important, whatever it is, to stick with it. If you don't, there is a very good chance that um, you will be found liable for copyright infringement. And that means not only the institution, but perhaps the professor individually, because um, most institutions will indemnify their employees to the extent they are complying with university policy and acting within the scope of your employment. But if you are violating university policy, you're probably out there on your own. And both the institution and the individual professor may be liable in that instance. Okay, what does indemnify mean? He's uh, promised to reimburse you if you have to pay damages to mm -hmm. a court and to reimburse you for your attorney's fees, which may sometimes be worse than the damages. Okay. <laughs> we have a question from Penn State. Do the panelists believe that copyright law can trump contract law? And what is the relationship between fair use and licenses, especially shrink wrap licenses? Mm -hmm. Oh, and the cyber shrink wrap, too. That's another cyber one. shrink wrap. I, I accept. <laughs> I accept. How many of us have, in just the last week had clicked on it? I accept without reading what was behind it. Raise your hand. Everybody does it. Okay. Um, this is a real good question, and I think it points in the direction that a lot of our thinking is going to have to go in the next few years. Copyright law sort of provides a backdrop against which contracts operate to change relationships and change our rights and responsibilities under the law. So theoretically, if you, you and I negotiate a contract about our rights, we can, we can agree to have a different set than the copyright law gave us. But that's when you and I are negotiating and thinking about it and we're going to both sign. These shrink wraps or I accept licenses generally can't be negotiated. You either accept the whole thing or you don't accept it at all. And, uh, and, and until very recently, those kinds of agreements weren't enforceable. Or I shouldn't say that there's never any clear-cut answer like that in, in law, but um, they, they tended to not be enforceable. But we've had some cases recently that have enforced them, and we have some legislative efforts that are aimed towards making it clear that they are enforceable. So what we, what we say now, if, if I click on something that says I accept and I've basically gotten rid of my right to fair use, uh, I think it's very, 
very likely that I gave it up. And that, that's the important area. Um, most of copyright law is something that you can change if you want to buy a contract, and, and that's widely accepted. But the big issue right now is, can a license require you to give up your fair use rights? Uh, there's at least one case out there that says yes, um, case out of the Seventh Circuit, and it's a reasonably well-reasoned opinion. Um, I disagree with it, but, but uh, the court said that you can give up your fair use rights. Uh, that issue, as, as Georgia said, is being fought out in Congress right now. We may get a, a definitive answer one way or the other, but until we do, it's really incredibly important to read through your licenses, particularly the ones where you do have a right to negotiate, the library sorts of licenses where um, ordinarily you can have a little back and forth. With the shrink wrap licenses, you, you're not, not going to have a choice. If you want the product, you're going to have to accept it. Now, what are the five rights that you get under the copyright laws? that You, you had mentioned these earlier. The right to copy to make copies, to distribute them, um, the right to display and perform works publicly, and the right to create derivative works. Those are the five exclusive rights. I wanted to say one other thing about this licensing, because, because I do think that more and more licenses are going to, to play a bigger role in the rights that we ultimately have to use someone else's work. There are a couple of really good resources uh, available to people who want to learn more about licensing. If you're in a library or if you're an administrator who's responsible for negotiating these licenses, the Yale University Library has a resource called Lib License, L-I-B-License. And I think we refer to it in our materials. Um, the Association of Research Libraries, the ARL, also has a number of very good licensing resources that will help you uh, negotiate better licenses if you're in, the, in one of those positions where that's your responsibility. Let me bring up something about licensing. I often hear people say that, well, if it's purchase order, I'll just write on it what I want to do and staple a copy of that, and they think that's okay. Not okay. Generally, software comes with a mm -hmm. license, mm -hmm. uh, and a database comes mm -hmm. with a license. And the, almost always those documents will say that whatever was in your purchase order, it doesn't count. So they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they tend to just discount that entirely. We have a question from the Fairfax County government in Virginia. If I download material from a website and the website has obtained that material from another source, who do they have to get permission from, the website or the original source? It's going to depend entirely on who owns the rights, and you won't necessarily know. You may have to get rights from both. If, um, if the website has incorporated into its website materials from another and created a new work, um, but has not acquired the copyright rights to those materials it's incorporated, you'll probably have to get the rights to those from the originator, and then to whatever you're downloading from the intermediate website from the creator of that. Um, the, the default rule is whoever creates the work owns the copyright rights unless they've assigned or licensed them. So um, it may take some digging. You may have to sort through who owns the rights, and that's not necessarily an easy thing. It can be complicated. Mm. One of the things that we do when we're looking for permissions uh, is we all, whoever we talk to, we always say, Are, do you own the rights? We, we want them to say when they give us permission, I am authorized to do this and I'm the only person you need to talk to. And if there's someone else, we ask them to let us know. So anytime you're asking someone for permission, you shouldn't assume that they're the only person. You should assume, in fact, that there might be others and ask them because they're in the best position to tell you if there are others out there who hold rights in this work. And if you can, not only ask them, but also ask them to warrant that, in yes. fact, they do own it so that if they breach their warranty, you have a cause of action against them when you're being sued for infringing somebody else's <laughs> copyright.
Sounds complicated. From the University of Pittsburgh, is there a generalized answer to the question of fair use of material downloaded off the web for use in K through 12 schools by K through 12 students for projects and other nonprofit learning experiences? Fair use principles. So again, what you'd have to wait in. Well, there's the multimedia guidelines, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. There's the um, guidelines for use of books and periodicals. Those things all are meant to uh, help K through 12s, especially, I think, um, know how much of a work they can use, how often they can use it, that kind of thing. Um, the copyright law applies to everything on the internet. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like that. There's a different set of rules for that. There's some special rules that deal with the, the special circumstances um, of the internet, but the basic copyright law is the same whether you're there or, or using a, a book. I think in one sense you might have a little more protection, which is probably most K-12 through projects are not things that are going to be sold commercially or even probably displayed. They're probably going to be classroom projects, and you generally have a wider latitude there. And I suspect that the courts in, in balancing the four factories probably would take into account the fact that a kindergartner really doesn't understand copyright law. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, probably isn't going to hold them to quite the same standard when it comes to damages. Those kindergartners are putting that web pages. Um, they are. <laughs> back to the guidelines for just a moment. Um, it's important, I think, that, that educators do have an understanding of what fair use is that Georgia went through and also what's available in the different guidelines, distance learning, the multimedia, uh, all of these, and be able to kind of weigh these and figure out which gives them the best deal. Sometimes you get more from the multimedia, sometimes you get less. So that's Use whichever gives you the best deal. And, and to keep in mind that the guidelines do not mark the outer boundaries of Absolutely fair use. Absolutely, they're minimum, not maximum, as folks would like us to believe. Sometimes copyright issues can be quite specific and quite complex at the same time. That's the case in this next scenario. A professor establishes a website for his class on electronic journalism and requires each student to create a web page to be included in the site. One of the student pages consists of a critique of various newspaper and magazine websites, which he illustrates with extensive screenshots from those sites. And the student links his website to various other sites using graphics from those sites to illustrate the links. The professor also establishes a listserv for the class and uses it to circulate and discuss copies of well-written articles that he finds on some of those same sites, as well as on the Clarinet and Nexus news services. Is it copyright infringement to download materials that are made freely available on the Internet? How can you tell if the material that you download from the Internet is copyrighted? Well, if you can see it, it probably is copyrighted. Uh, as of March 1, 1989, the copyright notice doesn't have to be there. I mean, it used to be that it's more and more, more complicated than that. But we used to look for that notice, you know, copyright. Mm -hmm. And now we tend to think that if we don't see that, sometimes it's not copyrighted, and that's not true. So if we can see it, it's copyrighted. You know, work is Unless copyrighted at the instant it's created. Exactly. Um, as we were writing out these mm -hmm. scripts, we were creating mm -hmm. copyrights. Mm -hmm. um, as you create a web page, you're creating mm -hmm. copyrighted work. It just happens automatically without any intervention by any legal authority. Is it permissible to use materials that are made available only through the Clarinet and Nexus licenses? And if so, are these particular uses fair? Um, again, that's going to depend on what the license says. Um, if the institution signs a license with Clarinet or, or with LexisNexis, it says that you can't make any use other than X. That's the only use you can make. Um, and, and again, they may try to restrict 
even your fair use rights. Um, one of the issues that comes up, though, is what happens when the institution enters into that license, but then someone else comes along and makes use of it in a library, say. Um, can the contract between the institution and Clarinet or LexisNexis cut off fair use rights for somebody else? Probably not. This is one of the things we try to get our institutions to focus on when they're, when they're negotiating these licenses, is not to eliminate, not to let the licensor try to eliminate the rights that you know your students are going to want to exercise when they mm -hmm. use these materials. So you really have to think ahead, sounds like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was it, would it make any difference if the professor and the students simply linked to other websites? Sure, easy to link to websites. And um, that way you, you get around a lot of the, the complicated issues, so sure. Um, one variation on that, the link itself, nobody really seriously mm -hmm. thinks is a copyright infringement. Framing, a technique mm -hmm. by which you incorporate a website into something that might have banners and other things, mm -hmm. conceivably could be creating a derivative work, which is one of the mm -hmm. exclusive rights of the copyright owner. Um, so if you do you know, linking plus, you may be in a riskier area. There's a good URL, again, in the list. Uh, w, the copyright website that is www.benedict.com has one of the best discussions on web-related issues that we find. And so a lot of those issues are dealt with there. Okay. Should there be a concern about using graphics from another site without no. getting permission mm -hmm. for those? This is especially troublesome because um, artistic works, especially, and even, even graphical images, um, there's, a, there's a, a variation in how the fair use statute um, plays out when you try to, to analyze them. But even more importantly, a lot of these graphics are part of someone's trademark. And if it's a logo or a graphic that's part of a trademark, you're stepping into a whole other area of law that's very different from copyright. The people who own trademarks have to enforce them. If they don't, they lose their rights. It isn't like copyright where you can tolerate all kinds of uses of your work without impairing your own rights. In trademark, if you don't enforce your rights, um, they, they eventually, uh, the, the law says that you no longer can exercise them. So they're really, they're really forced to deal with that. The other thing to keep in mind is the, those graphics, those logos may or may not be trademarked. It's up to you whether you do the trademark. It's mm -hmm. not automatically copyright, but the copyright was automatic. When that graphic right. was created, yeah, unless someone has voluntarily given up the rights to it, um, it is copyrighted, so it's going to be copyright infringement, even if it's not even trademark it's infringement. Not. And does it make any difference if what the student does on their page is personal rather than actually being a class project? Well, absolutely. In this case, um, the situation we have here, it was a class project, and that probably creates more institutional liability, um, not because of vicarious liability standards. Again, um, we're only vicariously liable for what our faculty and our staff do in the scope of their employment and not for what students do. However, there's also a standard for what's called contributory infringement. If you help somebody to infringe, you can be liable for it. And since these materials are on university servers, that becomes an issue. Now, where it becomes an issue is when you know or have reason to know that infringement is going on and don't do anything about it. If you assign the creation of a web page as a class project and you incorporate that, that web page onto a class website, you clearly know or have reason to know what the material is. And if it's infringing, you're going to be liable. If, however, it's a, a student personal page, um, you just have a server where students can do whatever they want. Nobody monitors it and so forth. Um, you're not going to be liable, at least under existing law, the legislation may change that, but you're not going to be liable simply because it's there. Um, where you will become liable is if someone comes to you with a complaint and you say, not our problem. Mm -hmm. At that point, you do have the knowledge. And if you don't do something, you may have contributory infringement liability. 
earlier a scenario focused on course ownership. This next one spotlights the right to use students' work on the Internet. A faculty member is posting students' papers and assignments to the web without their permission. The website is not password protected. The university catalog contains a clause that permits this activity in general terms. The faculty member also archives students' coursework and course-related email and intends to use that material as part of his doctoral research. He also plans to use the material from students in professional journals and to post it for subsequent classes of students to use as guidelines for what to do and what not to do in the course. Is this kind of policy legal? Is it ethical? Is it legal? Is it ethical? Well, you know, it is possible. Now, first of all, we have to start from this premise. The student owns the copyright in the student's work. That's a fact. There's only one way the student can get rid of that copyright, can give it to someone else, and that's in a writing signed by the student. That would be a copyright assignment. But the copyright, some little part of it, can be transferred to the institution in this policy. That would be what we call in, in uh, legally, we say the institution has a non-exclusive license to use the work the way they say they want to use it. So I'd say technically, legally, yeah, it's probably legal. But the ethical that, question, I'm not sure about and, and there is more to the legal. That's, it is legal if you do it that way under copyright law, but um, this scenario raises a question, uh, a situation where there are often other legal issues, and, and this is an important one. Under FERPA, the Family Education um, Right to Privacy Act, student records are confidential and we cannot release them, we cannot disclose them without the student's consent in, in almost any circumstance. So even if the student has given us copyright rights, even if they've given us complete copyright rights to the work, unless we have permission under FERPA, uh, we can't do it. FERPA um, almost always requires a signed writing. So the oral transfer of some rights for, might be enough for copyright, it won't be enough for FERPA. If the student works are currently being used without their explicit permission, should they be contacted since they own the copyright? And then what if you can't find the student? Well, absolutely, they should be contacted again um, for both reasons. You need to have the copyright rights before you can do that, unless it's fair use. But even if it's fair use, you still have to answer the FERPA question. Um, and without a, a signed writing from the student, there are very, very few chances that that's going to um, pass under FERPA. The exceptions are very narrow. So you really do need to do that. And if you can't find the student, um, there may be answers under copyright law about why you, you could do it even without the student's knowledge or permission. But there's almost no way you can do that without the student's permission under FERPA. You're talking about the Buckley Amendment? Buckley. Okay, thanks. <laughs> what if the website were password protected? Hmm. Well, it helps. Uh, it won't solve the problem entirely, but that goes, goes away to help to help deal with the situation. Again, I want to be a broken record, but that, that doesn't answer the FERPA question. It, it, it may answer the copyright question. It certainly will help you on the fair use argument. Mm -hmm. um, but unless you can figure out a way that the people who have passwords are um, institutional officials whom you mm -hmm. determine have a legitimate educational need to know, you're still going to have the FERPA issue. How do you do that? You can declare that in your policy. And, and oh. it can be students. Mm -hmm. It can be students who have a legitimate educational need to know. Mm. Um, the circumstances under which you can do that are kind of technical. We probably don't want to get into all that today, but it, it is possible. Okay. 
We have a question from Ball State University. Do the same rules apply to conducting an educational conference presentation as applied to classroom instruction? Oh, by that they're talking about taking something to a workshop setting. That's where the multimedia guidelines actually do provide some guidance. They talk about taking presentations, both from the student's point of view and the faculty member's point of view, to different types of workshops. So um, that's a good question, I think, where the guidelines really do give us some help. And I would say, even if we didn't have guidelines, mm -hmm. that if you're, if you're an educator and you're doing a workshop, uh, even though it isn't in the classroom with registered students, it is so similar that mm -hmm. certainly to say fair use doesn't apply would be crazy. But what if you're being paid for it? Like an honorarium? Mm -hmm. Does that make a difference? I don't think that it negates it entirely. Mm -hmm. It would certainly be one factor. But mm -hmm. again, um, if you if this was what you did for a living, right, as a consultant, yes, then that see that pushes. That's how those, these factors work. You know, everything's on the sliding scale. Mm -hmm. In the classroom, you're the teacher. You're on the most solid ground. You're the same teacher doing what you do for your your professional peers. Mm -hmm. You're still an educator. It's still nonprofit. You get an honorarium. It changes it a little bit. It, mm -hmm. You do this as a, your your basic way of making a living, and you've changed it pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm got a lot of copyright questions. This one from St. Edwards University. If a faculty member retrieves information from a website and has the university-owned copy center make multiple copies, who is financially responsible for any possible copyright violations? Most likely the university, but if that's a violation of your university copyright mm -hmm. policy, the individual may also be individually liable. All right, we're moving right along. The technology of the Internet itself can raise copyright questions, as you've heard, such as the case in this scenario on digitizing images. A faculty member excitedly rushes up to a desk where an archival librarian is sitting and explains that she has just discovered in the archive a fantastic collection of photographs depicting 19th and 20th century life in the borderlands. She wants to digitize the photos and make them the centerpiece of a website that will be available to scholars and students of Latino culture worldwide. Does the institution have the right to digitize the photographs? Before we deal with this scenario, it's time for you to begin placing your calls to talk with our panelists. We want to give you the phone numbers, the telephone number, 1-800-745-0371. We'll take calls in a moment, but first we want to go ahead and ask some of these questions. How does the institution determine which items can be digitized? Well, um, the way this uh, archive was described, the materials are old. And so the first thing you think of when you've got old stuff is perhaps it's in the public domain. Um, for things that were published over 75 years ago, they're in the public domain. So there may be a lot of these materials that, that the institution will be perfectly free to do whatever they want with. That's about the only con really concrete yes. piece of advice we have today. <laughs> it's a pretty hard and fast rule. If it's more than 75 years ago that it was published, published. Mm -hmm. then it's public domain. If it was not published, though, it may not be. Right. That's the problem with uh, an archive like this. Um, our libraries receive donations from individuals who have large collections. Well, a lot of those things might have been photographs that were taken by the individual him or herself, or family photos, and that, that never got published. Those materials don't go into the public domain until starting at the year 2002. Um, 
and then it's only if the author or the photographer has been dead for 50 years. And that's all. That's one of those things that the law is uh, that the legislators are looking at changing and making that deadline pushed back even further. But in general, it, it would be fair to, to say that the published material is 75 years old. You can use that's the public domain. Well, you say 75 years old, so that makes me think of black and white photos. Yes. And if they're black and white, what if a college or the faculty member wanted to colorize them? Well, they want it. That, that's very likely <laughs> that, that they might want to do that. And as long as they're not in France, it's really quite okay to do that. Um, now, I'm, I'm making a joke here, but um, we, we have uh, two sets of rules that sort of hit on that. One is it's a derivative work. And it, that's one of those five rights. You're not just making a copy now, you're making a derivative work. And if you're going to need permission, you need to be sure that you're asking for the right kind of permission. But the other set of rules has to do with moral rights. The authors of things like photographs and artistic works, especially in other parts of the world, have a right to see to it that nobody fools with their work. Okay? And you can't change it, you can't mutilate it, you can't destroy it without their permission. And in our country, we didn't have that tradition and we didn't respect those rights in quite the same way for a long time, but now we do. So I think it's an important thing for you to consider if you want to colorize is that this may be something that the author of this work wouldn't, would object to. Let me ask one follow-up clarification. If, if a work is in the public domain for making copies, it also is in the public domain oh, for derivative work. So you can do that. The public domain no, no, no. means anything you, you want. You can make the copies, you can perform or display it publicly, you can do right. anything. There's another thing too, I think moral rights only go as long as you're alive, I believe. Um, I can't swear to that, but that would mean that, that uh, it's conceivable that a work could, the moral rights could fall off even though um, the um, other rights hadn't. I shouldn't, I'm not sure about that. We have a question from the University of Nevada. How do I enforce my copyrights online? Mm. Oh, there's wonderful ways to do that. <laughs> actually, there are. Um, it's actually easier to know if someone's infringing your work online than if they're doing it somewhere else. That's one of the problems we have on the other side as users. When we infringe someone's work, it's easy for them to find out. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you um, have an article that you've written uh, and, you, and it has a string of words. Let's say it says, someone writes for permission to. That's just a string. Mm -hmm. You enter that string in, in, as a search term and every time, in, every place where that string is located on the World Wide Web, the entire world, will come up for you in a list. And you can just go through the list and see some of those documents obviously are going to be yours. But uh, if they're not, then you know that someone else has got your work on their site. Can a college give permission for others to digitize its own works from its collections? If they truly are its own works, that's not a problem. But where this often becomes an issue is in the special collections that our libraries acquire. Um, many people believe that when you acquire the collection, you get all the rights. In fact, all you get are the pieces of paper or the pictures or whatever. Mm -hmm. And unless you separately have gotten the copyright rights, you can't do that. The creator or whoever the copyright owner is continues to have those rights. So um, when you acquire collections of works. It's very important to work out if you want to be able to do that down the road, um, that you acquire the copyright rights you will need um, to do that. If someone simply gives them to you, bequeaths them to you, you don't have those rights. Okay. Now this is your chance to talk with our panelists. We have callers standing by. The telephone number again, 888-344-1170. 888-344-1170.
is 1-800-745-0371. And you can still send us a fax at 972-669-6633. The first caller with a question is coming from the University of Georgia. Go ahead, caller. Hello. Uh, this is from my good friend and colleague, Janice Bruhlhyde. Jay Harriman at the University of Georgia, and for any other member of the panel, a faculty member has an illustrative brief clip from a purchased commercial video he owns and wants to digitize and make available via video streaming or a downloadable file to students in the course. How does that compare to fair use in the classroom and the creation of a new work? It would seem like the multimedia guidelines would give us a little bit of help there. Yes, I'd agree. It is possible to take a little bit of a video clip and make it available to students, but those guidelines, again, I can't overemphasize this, they talk about uh, restricting access, mm -hmm. uh, the period of time over which you make it available being coincident with the semester, um, and then, of course, the, the, the amount is very small. Mm -hmm. So uh, if, the clip, if the clip satisfies the, the length requirements, and the other requirements are met, then it's certainly within the multimedia guidelines. Well, one other thing under the multimedia guidelines, though, is you can't do that forever. Mm -hmm. um, there are time right. limitations on it. Mm -hmm. And the other important thing to keep in mind is that, um, as, as we talked about before, no one has ever adopted the mm -hmm. multimedia guidelines as law. They're not like classroom no. guidelines. They do not yet have the force of law. I think most of us believe that, um, to the extent you can adhere pretty closely to them, you've got a pretty good fair use argument. We have another caller from Washington, D.C. Go ahead, caller. Yes, good morning and afternoon. Thank you. Um, I was calling to follow up on the comments earlier regarding uh, the status of very important legislation pending in Washington. There is, in fact, uh, legislation moving uh, through Congress uh, and, in fact, was marked up in the House and the Senate just today and yesterday. So the comments earlier by the panel were very uh, timely. The problem is that legislation does not have any provisions which expressly protect fair use or any of the other valuable access to information provisions of the Copyright Act. So for those folks who care about landmark legislation now moving through Congress and the fact that it does not protect educational parts of the Copyright Act need, frankly, to contact their congresspeople and say, protect access to information in the Copyright Act. The Capitol switchboard is 202-225-3121, and it's imperative that people contact their representatives now. Uh, contrary to uh, the comments earlier, and I know the panel's been busy working on the work of this teleconference, contrary to what was said earlier, this is happening, and it's happening now. Any comments? Uh, well, there are competing bills, and I have to admit that I was focusing on the good ones. <laughs> Um, the ones that, uh, that I would hope that we have a chance of having uh, go through, but it is true uh, for the good ones like the Ashcroft bill and the uh, Campbell Boucher bill, there are also ones that are very harsh and that don't have um, the rights and, and things that we need in them that are going through. But this process, yeah, well, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the caller. The process is complex, but it requires that we get involved, as mm -hmm. Janice said mm -hmm. herself. One of the ones that's particularly of concern is, um, I think it's called the Database Protection yes. Bill, mm -hmm. which would, in effect, extend copyright-like rights to facts. Under current law, 
um, fax cannot be copyrighted. FACTS, fax. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. not, not facsimile, <laughs> telecopy. Um, under current copyright law, and as the Supreme Court has, has ruled in the um, Feist case, facts cannot be copyrighted, ideas cannot be copyrighted, um, and that's, that includes compilations of facts like phone books. Um, having a, a list of data in a common form like a phone book is simply not copyrighted expression. The database protection bill may change that, and that could become very important when you start talking about all the kinds of databases our libraries are acquiring. Uh, thank you very much, panel. Just very quickly, Georgia mentioned two excellent bills. Senator Ashcroft's bill is S1146, and telling your senator that's what you support would be great. The Boucher-Campbell bill is HR... Uh, 3048. 3048, thank you. Thank you uh, and telling your representative that you support that would be terrific. Uh, folks who are interested will find lots more information in a number of places, but the public and private sector have come together in the Digital Future Coalition mm -hmm. to support those bills. Mm -hmm. And that website is www.dfc.org. Now's the time. Thank you very much. We're kind of thank running you. out of time, so we need to move right along. We have a call coming in from Fairfax County, Virginia. Go ahead, caller. Um, first of all, it's a great program. Let me uh, say that I really do appreciate it. My question is in regarding to giving credit to the materials that I download. In other words, if I download some material from a website and on my own website I give credit to the initial website, does it take care of everything? Do I still need to get to, to get permission, or do I I don't need to do that anymore? Yes. Thank you. It's certainly going to help in the sense that the person may be less angry at you, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really answer the copyright question at all. You still have to go through the analysis of whether it's fair use or whether you have permission. Um, and if you don't have one of those things, it's going to be copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. A better solution would be to link to the site instead of copying the document. Mm -hmm. Whenever you can link to a site, whenever you can just say, go here and get it, you're always on better ground than if you mm -hmm. have downloaded something mm -hmm. from a site and put it on your site. I realize that it isn't always possible, but, but please consider that as an option and exercise that when, it, when you can. Our next caller is from Bossier Paris, Parish in Louisiana. Go ahead. Yes, if you think you may have violated a copyright law, is there a statute of limitations that applies, <laughs> and what can you do to rectify your violation? There is a statute of limitations, and um, it's three years. There, there is some, uh, I think the NET Act has extended the statute of limitations for criminal, that's willful, uh, copyright infringements above the thresholds that Steve talked about earlier to five years, didn't it? I think that's right. I'm not yes. positive, but I think that's right. So if it's been longer than three years and it was an innocent infringement, I think innocent meaning that you didn't know it was an infringement and you did it anyway, uh, then you're probably okay. But, but if you want to rectify something, even today, you can do that. You can, for example, if you've... Um, incorporated some material into something you've created, you can ask for permission. Now, there's a chance that they'll say no, um, and it may you may have to undo something that you've done, but um, it's, it's perfectly okay. Keep, keep in mind, though, that if you are still using whatever this material <laughs> is, the original copying violation may, the statute may have passed on, but if you're continuing to distribute it, you're infringing today, so the three years is just just starting right now. Mm -hmm. That's a good um, point. So you, you, I guess, need to figure out exactly what it is you are or are not doing, and, and you don't have to comment if you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> this was for someone else. Oh, of course. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, caller. 
We have a call from Brigham Young University. Go ahead. Hello. Hello. I'm wondering what are the essentials to include when you're documenting information you've downloaded from the Internet? I don't understand the question. Do you all? Mm -hmm. No. Could you tell me what you mean by the essentials to include when you're documenting? What do you mean documenting what? Uh, if you are including something, like a student is including something in a paper, uh, what should they put? Because uh, I know sometimes things are taken off the net after a short period of time. Are you talking about electronic citation? Yes. Okay. There's some excellent sites on the web. Many of them are at libraries, and I might just mention Rennie Library at Montana State University has such a site, but there's lots of them. And uh, there are most of the style manuals, APA and some of the others, are talking about now and giving examples about uh, how to cite a news group, how to cite an electronic document. So there really isn't any excuse anymore for students not to be able to find that information. It's very readily available. I would just do a, a search for citation style manuals or something like that. As a matter of copyright law, um, it probably doesn't really matter in most instances, except if you're trying to rely on the classroom guidelines mm -hmm. or the multimedia guidelines and maybe some of the others, I'm not sure. There are requirements that you list certain things. Those are all listed in the guidelines. You have to list the author, the date of publication, and, and um, where it's available, I think the publisher, things like that. Um, those all depend on whichever guidelines you're, you're following. And, and um, as we mentioned, those are available at George's website and others. Um, but ordinarily, under copyright law, if it's fair use, you don't have to put down anything as a matter of copyright. You may have plagiarism issues, you may mm -hmm. have citation issues, um, but those aren't legal issues. Ethical issues. Ethical. Mm -hmm. Academic misconduct. Very good. Ethical misconduct. Which could happen. Very serious. Our next call is from North Carolina A&T University. Call, are you there? Yes. Okay, go uh, ahead. Yes. Uh, many libraries are purchasing books that have accompanying disc, i.e. floppy disk and CDs. If a particular book and accompanying disc are cataloged and a patron checks this material out and installs the disc on it or CD, on his home personal computer. Is that considered an infringement on the publisher's ownership of copyright? The discs are supposed to be labeled. Mm -hmm. when, when libraries circulate software, and I would assume CD-ROM mm -hmm. certainly fall into that, there's a very precise um, statement. And it's very precise and it's very big that must be attached to each piece of that software. And in essence, it's a, it's a thou will not copy type of thing. So that should be attached to all that. Once the item leaves the library, though, uh, I know a lot of librarians are very concerned about trying to police and being worried about um, what's going to happen to the item. But if we put the documentation on the item, we've done our best to make sure that the patron knows they aren't to copy it, then we've kind of done the best we can do. That's for us as an institution, but mm -hmm. the individual who's making the copy wow. um, may be individually liable for copyright infringement. Um, and, and even if it would be a fair use in another context, if the license says you can't do it, you, mm -hmm. you have that issue we talked about before. But I do, but I do want to say that you have to load this onto your computer to use it. So, you know, I want to distinguish between someone who takes the CD and puts it into their computer and it, it gets loaded on and they use it and when they're finished borrowing it, quote unquote, they, they take it off. That's perfectly all right. That's, we have the right, libraries have the right to lend software 
as long as it's non-profit and that kind of thing, and they use the notice, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this, this brings up an important issue, too, that, that comes up on the Internet, which is the concept of implied licenses. Um, everything you do on the Internet involves making copies. You can't look at a web page without actually making okay. two copies in your computer, temporary copies. Um, if you post to Usenet, you're actually creating over 200,000 copies of your message. Um, and everything you do, the whole medium works by making copies. To the extent that the, the copies occur naturally strictly to make the medium work, that's generally considered to be covered by what's called an implied license, and that's okay. But that implied license doesn't mean you can go on and do other sorts of things, like make permanent copies or incorporate those works into other works. Um, the fact that they're on the Internet doesn't mean they're free. Um, the fact that they are the Internet only means that you can do those things that you need to do in order to make the Internet work. That's what the implied license is, and it's a very similar concept to what mm -hmm. you were talking about. Right. Our next call is from the University of Missouri. Hello. Hi, yes. Um, can an email be sufficient for copyright permission, or do you need um, an original signature? And how can you assure authorship? Um, the first question is fairly easy. I don't think you need a signed permission from people. In fact, I know you don't. But it's just a matter of the the... There's like a sliding scale of the value of evidence. If you were going to have to try to prove later on that you got permission, obviously something signed by the author is, is the most helpful to your case. A verbal permission, though, is still evidence. It's just that it's harder to prove. Well, you can see that an email falls somewhere in between. It's not signed, but it is in writing. Um, now, someone can always argue about whether they really sent it. But the second question, how can you prove authorship, um, I'm, I don't, that's very difficult to answer. I'm not sure exactly how, how you would do that. Do you all know, do we? Yeah, are you talking about the authorship of the, the person who wrote the email to make sure that you're dealing with the right person? No, I was asking about the, the authorship of the work. Oh, how could she know that that's the author of the document? You need to explain it a little better. We don't really understand. Okay, when you're asking about uh, permission to use that work, how can you be assured that um, when you get the email back that that person is actually the author of the work? Oh, that's the kind of thing I mm -hmm. talked about earlier where I said you, when you ask for permission, you need to ask the person, are you the author? Are you authorized to give me this permission? Is there anyone else I need it from? And as Steve pointed out, it'd be nice if you said, and if, you, and if you're wrong about this, you will reimburse me for my expenses when I get sued. That's the identification. And the important thing to keep in mind, it's not necessarily the author you want. You want the person who owns the copyright. Owns the right. That's the original right. person is probably going to be the author, but they may have given those rights to someone else. Mm -hmm. And if they have, um, it doesn't matter what they say, you need to get the permission from the person doing it. Let me ask Georgia just one question. Um, you're talking about permissions by email. Um, as you point out, for a permission, it can be verbal, but for an assignment, to yeah. actually acquire them, it does have to be in writing. Would an email suffice for that? Not unless you had a digital signature, and you're, like our state now has a law that, that validates digital signatures as mm. officially okay to, uh, to make contracts. So I would assume that you, a digitally signed assignment would be mm. valid in the state of Texas. It might not be in another state that didn't, ha that didn't accept that as a valid signature. Would it be a good idea to follow up in writing to the person? Oh, it's mm -hmm. always the better the better your evidence, the, you know, the better you are okay. off you are. We have a question from the University of South Carolina. Can I do whatever I want with other people's email? 
And who would want to read some of it, actually? But um, this question came up, I think, in, in one of the other uh, ones that were faxed in earlier. And the answer is no, you can't do whatever you want with someone else's email. It's private correspondence. Um, can you archive it, keep it for yourself to read over and over and uh, enjoy? Sure. But when it comes to binding it, selling it, giving it away, whatever, you can't do that. That's, I mean, that email, as we talked about, that email, as the person was sitting there typing it, they were creating a copyrighted work. And when they hit, hit send, they sent a copy of that work mm -hmm. to you. And you do own that copy, but you do not own the copyright unless they've given it to you. It's just like if you buy a book in a bookstore. You can do whatever you want with that book. You can give it to somebody else. You can give it to a library. You can sell it to someone, that copy. But you can't make more copies of it. You can't write your own book incorporating big chunks of it. Um, and you can't do that with email either. And I wouldn't forward it without asking their permission about it. I mean, that is, amazes me because it's so easy to do that people will do that. And uh, they need to not think of it as quite that free mode. But that fixation in a tangible medium is, is a piece of funny language that I think folks really do need to remember. We have a call from Bossier Parish Community College in Louisiana. Go ahead, caller. Hearing a busy signal, I guess they hang up. <laughs> well, we'll go to one of our fax questions then. What happens to your copyright upon your death? It lives on. Not one thing. <laughs> it lives on. <laughs> and um, may live on longer. Right now, the way um, our copyright laws work, this document that I created um, will be under protection until 50 years after I'm dead. And the laws that are being considered to extend the term of copyright would make it so that um, this piece of paper would be protected for 70 years after I'm dead. The clock does start running wow. once you're dead, but it's still That's there. Well, it's okay. protected for a long, long time. Pretty much a whole other lifetime. Mm -hmm. well, we do have that call from Bossier Parish Community College. Go ahead. Sound there? Yes, go ahead. You're on the air. Okay. Yes, uh, we want to know if our college wants to establish a web radio station, what should our copyright concerns be regarding music? You should have very big concerns regarding yes. music. You probably, your college probably has licenses right now from BMI and ASCAP and CSAC, which are the um, three main music rights organizations. And um, that license will ordinarily cover things you do on your campus. Um, they will not cover broadcasts off of your campus. It covers sort of things like when you have a concert in your um, facilities or you have music on hold. Um, on your telephone system, but it won't cover that. You're going to need additional licenses from whoever it is who owns the rights to that music. And I believe, um, I don't know, BMI and, and ASCAP and CSAC are working out those issues, but I don't think they have a standard license yet, do they? We just saw their standard license um, last week, in fact, and they right up front they say, we haven't worked out the details of how we want to handle the Internet yet. We are working on it. Mm -hmm. the, everyone seems to acknowledge that we need a license to do that, but we're sort of like all just tiptoeing around that fact for the moment until we work out the terms of how of how it'll look. Do you know that what the, all the people who are doing real audio now, do they have rights? I, I don't even know. Are they just taking their chances? They're taking their chances at the moment. Well, now, we have, a, we have a radio station on our campus in Austin that wants to uh, transmit things on the Internet, and they, their license is not an ASCAP BMI license. Mm -hmm. Radio stations have other... Uh, regulatory things they have to deal with and all kinds of things. So it may, may be that they're doing it as an adjunct to their broadcast. I'm not sure. 
We have a very official call coming to us from the federal government in Quantico, oh. Virginia. Go ahead. I don't know that I'm any more official than anybody else. <laughs> uh, excellent show, folks. Very good job. Thank you. Um, I work in a uh, production facility, one of the many in the federal government that produces videotapes. We've been kicking around the question of public domain uh, um, issues. And so here's my question. If there is a creative work, let's say it's a videotape, that was originally produced by the federal government, and as such, um, you know, since it was made with taxpayer funds, was originally public domain material. Can this video later be copyrighted by a private corporation that used the video in conjunction with uh, other material of their own creation? And if the answer is yes, then how do they do that? Do you know something about that? I... Well, it seems to me that if they create a derivative work, they might be able to, to copyright the derivative work, but I don't see any way they could copyright the, the original public domain work itself. Mm -hmm. right. um, this raises one other interesting question, which is that this should be very heartening to most of the people out there listening. Even the federal government doesn't really know the answers to this question. Um, and and fair use is, is just a, such a hard issue. There really are only nine people in this entire country who know whether any particular work, uh, any particular use is a fair use or not. Um, the, the nine justices of the Supreme Court, and they don't always agree on this either. Um, the real problem is that they will not give you an answer ahead of time. You have to, to, to make the judgments we've been talking about here. Um, they're often very hard judgments, but if you're reasonable, you'll have the good faith, fair use defense. Um, and if even the federal the representatives of the federal government here can't, can't tell you for sure, that should be very heartening to, to all the rest of us. But I think it is important to, to this is a, uh, not just in case of videotapes, not just in the case of videotapes, but all of those materials that are created by the government are in the public domain, and nothing can really take them out of the public domain. But if someone uses them in something else, the, the something else is copyrighted. But you could go, as an individual, you could go back to the source and get that same public domain work and use it in something else. And you could even arguably take it out of the work that the person created the something else, you could use the part of it that was never protected yourself for another work. Mm. Okay, so it doesn't, you can't lose that public domain status uh, except in one very, well, we won't get into that. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to do with government works, it has to do with other works that, that uh, might be able to come out of the public domain because of some treaties that we've entered into recently. Our next caller is from Boston P. University. Go ahead. Hi, it's Austin P. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, they have it spelled correctly. <laughs> I'm sorry I joined you late, so I apologize if you've already covered this issue. If you're a freelance writer, say for a, a magazine, you assign them, let's say, uh, First American Rights. Your rights to that piece, of course, after publication go back to the writer. But what protection does a writer have if the magazine, after it's published, if they put it on the Internet without your permission? This really highlights the importance of documenting up front as closely and as carefully as you can what rights you're giving up. There actually was a case very much like this involving um, the New York Times. It was a class action, I think, to Cini versus the New York Times and, and a bunch of other people. Um, in which I believe the court said that first North American rights, at least as expressed in those particular arrangements, did include the right um, to some electronic rights. So you would want to be very careful to try to restrict those rights up front if you don't want to 
um, to give those up. Now, a lot of uh, publishers today are required, I've seen contracts that require writers to give up all intergalactic rights or all universal rights, so you may not have much of a choice. Uh, they want to be very careful that they get all the rights, but it, it, this is something you can try to negotiate. Okay. We have another call from California State University in Monterey Bay. This is our last phone call this morning, so if y'all can just be swift. Go ahead, caller. <laughs> okay, we'll go quickly. Save the best for last. As we increase the amount of multimedia and web-based assignments we give our students, what is the obligation of the institution to really inform students of what their rights are, and, and how might you recommend universities meet that obligation? I think there's a, a tremendous responsibility on the part of organizations to inform students. In fact, Steve and I were talking about this, we all were earlier, and it's not just at the university level. I mean, since we do have kindergartners start to build home pages, uh, maybe we need to start talking about copyright issues from, from both perspectives, starting a lot younger than we do now, but I think there's a tremendous need for education. I know Steve's been doing some things, and George's site does as well. It's, it's, we probably don't have a legal responsibility mm -hmm. per se, but what we have to realize is we're handing our students and our faculty the power to be international publishers and broadcasters. Mm -hmm and they're doing things that have just extraordinary copyright implications. But most kindergartners, mm -hmm. most college students have never before even heard of copyright law, let alone know, you know all the, the various tests. And so um, if for no other reason just to do ourselves a service to prevent all these issues from coming up, we really need to educate our students. We're all learning as we go along. Yes. Well, we are near the end of the time that we have today, and I want to thank Georgia Harper, Steve McDonald, and Janice Bruno-Hyde for leading us through this whole minefield of copyright issues on the Internet. Thanks very much to all of you. It's been well, great. It's fun. Thank you. I also want to thank all of the nearly 600 colleges and universities and the other sites in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico who are participating with us by satellite. We're sorry that we couldn't get to all of the faxes and the phone calls, but we hope that we've given you enough information so that you have been, if you've been a crook, <laughs> you can change your ways. Or maybe if you've been too narrow in your approach, you can act with confidence to improve your teaching and learning. Now, looking ahead, the next live satellite event from Dallas Teleconferences and the PBS Adult Learning Service will be this summer. On June 30th, we'll uplink a national town meeting from the Innovations 98 conference in Dallas, sponsored by the League for Innovation in the Community College. That event will be part of the series of year-long activities on the learning revolution in higher education, and it's a follow-up to the video conference we uplinked from the LaCroix Center this past January. On Thursday, October 29th, you can learn the skills required to teach effectively at a distance on television or online or both. The workshop leader will be Dr. Tom Sears, whose in-person workshops are in great demand across the U.S. and overseas. On January 28, 1999, the topic will be faculty pay for those who create and those who teach distance education courses. We'll explain several models so you can evaluate them with your institution in mind. Now, on April 8th next year, go ahead and mark your calendars. There's a whole lot going on. The focus will be on improving the quality of service provided by colleges and universities. This program will include information on the skills necessary for good service and the rewards for providing it. We want to thank you once again for participating in this live satellite event. I'm Shelley Lockhart. Good afternoon to all of you from Dallas.